Hi everyone, it's Brian again from Dads with Swords. Uh, apologizing again, we've been away for a little while. Our lives have been uh, especially chaotic of late, so we apologize again for the uh, lengthy delays between getting podcasts out. Uh, this next one we actually recorded on the way back from a fencing event uh, out in Kempville, Ontario. And it is with our instructor, uh, the head instructor of the Ironwood Sword School in Kingston. Uh, that's Robert McLeod. So, uh, it is recorded on the road, um, in, in Robert's truck. It's, uh, humming along pretty loud. Uh, so I've tried to clean up the audio as best I can. Uh, hopefully the quality is good enough. If there's anything really egregious in there that I missed, uh, please let me know and I'll try to, uh, run a few more filters on it. Thanks everyone. Enjoy. Dads with swords. It's surely illegal. Dads with swords. Dads with swords. It just shouldn't happen. Dads with swords. So everyone knows I've hit record, but just pretend that I didn't. Because it's irrelevant. So the idea is we're going to talk swords now? Doesn't matter. Or you just want to capture the road trip? Yeah. Okay. Sorry, me, it's not my transmission. <laughs> I'm at 292.6. Rotor is unkillable, but my body is dead. I'm going to get taken off the road soon. Yeah. I'm trying to find another truck in there. No, I'm, well, I'm trying to hold out for a standard. Are you able to get the farm plates, or do you have to be a commercial operation for that? Well, you have to be a farm to get the farm plates. Right. And to be a farm, you have to have $7,000 gross income. Ah. But we don't have it. Right. And we decided we weren't going to stress about getting it. Yeah. Why bother, right? Well, for the benefits at this point, it wasn't a big deal for us. Then you're on these preppers and you have the right to inspect and all that other crap, right? Yeah. Kingston, clicks. Here we go. Yeah, it's actually a, a short little drive. You, even though it's Kentville, you always have in your head Ottawa, and then right, but it's not. It's not. It's a good forty-five minutes from Ottawa. Yeah. Depending on what part of town you're in. Yeah. So I did the thing that Barry had been telling us to do against the Fiorist. When they're in Austin, Ghana, just a corkscrew. Mm-hmm. And and if you can pick the moments where they just have to start shifting their weight, it was really starting to work. Yeah, I was working that one too. And then Matt goes into unicorn. That's like shit. Yeah, exactly. Shit, I figured I'm out the one. Not sure what to do with this. You figure out the one trick, so he throws something else at you. Yeah, I should definitely say it didn't work so much against Matt and. Matt was definitely playing nice with me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Still wasn't wasn't quite working. Because it works as long as you are as fast or faster than, than that fencer. But when they are definitely faster than you, not so good. So some of what you saw today, Candace, was Italian fencing. And they have different guards than we do. So the one where they're way behind their, their head, that's supposed to be Donna, guard of the woman. Because you get this huge wind-up. And the other one, he turns it around, he puts his hand on the back, and he comes straight out. Is uh, Bicornio, the unicorn guard. Those are the two that are the most different. Yeah, I noticed they were like this a lot. Mm-hmm. And they grab my shirt. Yeah. yeah, and they're very grabby. Yeah. Italians are grabby. And I was just like, what? <laughs> yeah. I found all of our working on... Um, Oh, God, I'm not going to be able to even think of terms now, but just even working on windings and working on disengages really helped with that because you'd see the hand coming out and you just move the point somewhere else and then it, it would set them off, you know? Yeah. Um, when Aaron came and did that little talk with us and he was talking about, uh, he referred to it as short-circuiting the Italian brain. Right. And I definitely felt like today was the first time I was able to successfully do that sometimes where I could... For the first time, maybe the last couple of months, I've started to really get a good sense of the vor and the knot. Right. 
and that I was much more able to use Nog Reason, regain the Vor, and then if I could maintain the Vor, they didn't seem to have as much of a way to, to get themselves back into a good position. Like, I know they like to fight from the Nog, but if you could really push them hard, they didn't get the chance to anymore. Like, I had a couple of Zwerch flurries that were working really... I wasn't getting in, necessarily, right. but I was completely safe doing them. Because their other response, Italians and also want to close to wrestling a lot more quicker than we do. They have a lot more dirty tricks to do in close. So they have a name for it. It's, uh, Strata? Strata or Largo? Largo yeah, Yucca Strata is Strata. there. Strata. Yeah. Strata is Strata plays. It's close plays. They have a whole bunch of them. So they're, they're actually happy. And I would say, that's what I say to Matt is, if, if Italian is there as a way of learning how to beat the German guy who is going to use tricky five secret strikes and stay at distance, then their their response is tricks in the knock, little dirty tricks, and close to wrestling on us. And then yeah. take our sword away and get grabby. One thing I still haven't been able to make work is crumb. I can never seem to land a good crumb Crumb is hard to make work. But uh, I definitely had, like, I had Zwerch's work for me today. I had a couple of shields work uh, really well um, against, uh, of, uh, actually against the Bicornio at one point. I was able to land a shield, shield. And, and just displace it enough to get in. Because it's a bit like long point. It's not a stable guard. Yeah. And it's more stable than long I mean, point, but I have the benefit of being big. So sorry, it's, like it's, it's a stabile guard, yeah. but it's not... It's like long point. It's got a leverage disadvantage. Right. Yeah. yeah. And it has less of a disadvantage than long point because they have it tucked into the chest. But right. I'm going to use my size advantage when I can, at least. Meet weakness with strength. Yeah. It was neat to uh, when Matt was giving that little mini lecture on Abrazare, and he was showing. Uh, a lot of the stuff that a lot of the specific body mechanics he was talking about in getting into that grappling and in you know you don't want to do this that's really common in boxing or that's somewhat common in MMA because in a no rule situation it can it can backfire on you and a lot of it is was echoed in Max's pugilism lessons um, because again Max teaches styles of pugilism from before Queensbury rules became right. the norm. And when the London prize fighting rules were in effect, you could still kick and grapple. And, I mean, you couldn't bite or eye gouge necessarily, but having more options forces you to, to behave more like a, a fiorist, I guess, it's when they're going for grappling. Yeah. For sure. So a lot of that, keeping, your, keeping yourself sort of forward-weighted, but keeping your upper body upright, keeping your head a little bit back and not letting yourself lean forward and keeping a hand extended so you can always maintain distance. So that was pretty neat. And even down to the don't punch the guy in the head because you can't guarantee to knock him out. And that's Max always teaches us, punch with the solar plexus if you can, rather than the head, because yeah. you can disrupt more there and less risk to your own hands. I forget who I was fighting, but we closed and I punched him in the face. And I went, oh, yeah? We should probably replay that because <laughs> usually not a lot. It was one of the guys from Ottawa there. You're going to the tournament, too, so I was like, right. we should probably replay that, because that's not going to be in the tournament, so sorry about that, because <laughs> I was fighting, right? I still remember Wayne just, he went down to Guelph, and he came back, and we fought. Before that, he never hit anybody, and he, they toughened him up, and they, they practiced all the kicks and the bobbles and everything. Yeah. So we were fighting, and we closed, and he just hauled up with his, got the hourglass gone, with the metal gone, oh, and, he's, and he's a little skinny guy like Chris Jaskulinski, uh, is that redhead guy. This guy, Wayne, is one of our old fighters. He went to a different school. He came back. And he hauled up and he popped me in the face with this freaking metal gauntlet. I was like, rock me right back. And I just laughed. Not the right response. Because I was so impressed. I was like, ah, that was great. <laughs> He's like, why don't I just give you my best shot, right? Because he turned, they turned him into a fighter. It was great. Well, that's kind of like, uh, we had that little bit of tournament uh, in the park. We just did the berries on him. Yeah.
with, um, uh, oh my god, I'm blanking on her. Amber? Amber. She played with Amber and she trained with us so she's got the basics. I have a good mnemonic for Amber because I just remember Jurassic Park. <laughs> yeah, so he, he's been working on it steady. I don't know why he hasn't come out. He rolled his ankle. Yeah. I'm hoping it's not a bad injury and he's just busy with other stuff. Because he said it wasn't broken or just a light sprain and thought he'd be back. Didn't he have some work scheduling issues too or something well, like that? Yeah, so, stuff yeah. Comes up, right? Yeah, but Grant's right. That, that time... He just, his aggression kicked up into high gear, and it's funny because then he'll come at you so aggressive, and he'll take the mask off, and he's still just that big, friendly guy with a smile, like, hey, how's it going, Lewis? That's fun. Yeah. Krista kicked my ass for the first time at stick class last Thursday. I got really happy because I landed that, that jig kick, that sort of double kick. What and then, on me? Yeah, and then... Smacked her on the top of the head, and it was really loud, and everyone was, going, oh, you know, like, he just hit his wife in the top of the head, and I I hit a switch is what I did, because she then kicked the crap out of me, and I wasn't even trying to hit back, I was just trying to defend, and I couldn't, couldn't keep up, just had a flurry. A Saber versus Messer was a neat matchup, too. Because yeah. Messer is heavier, right? Heavier and just a tiny bit shorter. And is just short enough that things would happen. Like, I would see an opportunity where he would close, and I'd say, oh, I can grapple now, because I had my hand free and I was ready to grapple. And his sword was just short enough that he was able to just redirect it and thrust. Even though my point was well past him, I thought, oh, I'm safe. I can't get thrusted because I'm already in measure. And that messer is just short enough that he was able to do it. Was he a little slower where you could cut around? Uh, not really. I think it comes down to just... also short. Yeah, so just that, that inch or two makes up. Mo- smaller moment arm. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was neat. Uh, the, the biggest advantage to having the saber versus him with the messer is he had the nagel, but you can still kind of cut around that. It was a lot easier to get. Um, like the inner wrist cuts in particular with right. the saber. Right, yeah. Whereas he would try to get those cuts with me, and I was able to deflect it onto the guard of the saber and not have my hand hit, so that was nice. Yeah. Like I said, eventually with a heavy messer, I'm sure he would have cut through a brass guard, but he saved for a few hits anyway. Brass isn't that soft. Civilian weapon for you know street encounters or friendly duels. 
that context affects the sword player, right? Absolutely, yeah. For sure. Saber Symposium? Yeah, the Symposium. Uh, they had actual like, woodcuts and stuff of uh, Saber versus Monster. Yeah. And typically the Small Sword uh, user has their little craft that was called Cloak. Yeah. Uh, against uh, Saber Guns. There you go. That seemed to be the case. We've tried this in the past. We've done Saber versus Small Sword. We find it's better with the Saber to attack the other. Right. And they win. And so somebody countered with that. They said, oh, actually, there isn't a Small
saddles were smooth, right? You're just kind of, you're on the saddle and you're riding. Stirrups hadn't been invented. So it was hard to fight from the saddle because it was really easy to be unhorsed. And the Celts had this four-pommeled saddle so you could have a pommel on each side of each of your legs, like your inner thigh and your outer thigh, so you're locked into the saddle. And then they had uh, spikes attached to ropes that would also be tied to the saddle. So they could charge into battle, they could deliver a charge, they could hurl spears, you know, using the, the speed of the horse to add the force to it. And then when they wanted to dismount and fight on foot, they'd drive the spikes into the ground so their horse wouldn't go anywhere. And they'd fight on foot, pull the spikes out, get back on their horse and, and move to the next place. So they were highly mobile shock troops. And they had their charioteers. Charioteers, to me, that was the, the ultimate romantic idea of ancient Celtic combat. Because you have this Celtic warrior noble, who is the warrior, and then you have his chariot driver, which is almost the equivalent of a, a medieval squire. You know, someone who spends a lot of time with this warrior, very close, and the chariot driver would be driving them, and they'd be doing drive-bys and hurling javelins in their chariots. And then they do a similar style of shock troop thing where the charioteer would do a drive-by, the warrior would leap off, fight, 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 wait for the chariot to come back around and hop on. And there's accounts of Celtic warriors performing, you know, like dancing on the yoke of the chariot between the chariot and the horses to show off before battle. Right on. Mad skills! Yeah! Stuff you can do! I want that! Did you ever, uh, dig deep into into Scottish history as far as warfare no. beyond beyond doing broadsword? No. Because that was where I always went just because of having the Scottish heritage. It's, you know, it's a, a bummer sometimes that the Celts didn't have a good written history because we don't have a lot well, of these Scottish so manuals. Um, but I, I started into studying the Picts, and it's still an area of study I'd like to get back into because there are really... They're enigmatic people, I guess. By a lot of historic accounts, they just kind of appear in Scotland. Right. And there's debate over whether or not the Picts and Caledonians are the same, if they're different tribes of the same people, because the Romans were fighting the Caledonians. And I think it was Hadrian's Wall... No, the Antonine Wall was built to stop the Caledonian advance, and then the Roman legion pushed past the Antonine Wall. All of a sudden, the Caledonians are gone, and the Picts exist. And Hadrian's Wall went up, and uh, and Rome never expanded beyond Hadrian's Wall, really. Well, that's, that's the one thing, because I, I actually visited it when I was a kid, right? Yeah. So that made a big impression on me, because of the Scottish flood, right? Like, yeah, we stopped the Romans, right? What's really neat about Hadrian's Wall, too, and maybe you remember this from when you were a kid, but they have all the, the dry stone dikes in Scotland, so they're walls that don't have any mortar. I remember my cousin explaining to me when I was there that um, there's actually courses you can take just to learn to build dry stone dikes because they start to fall down and it's a really specific trade to be able to find stones and sort of intuitively know which ones are going to fit together well enough to make this. Yep. So you're driving through Scotland, you see these beautiful works of art, these walls, and the further south you go, the more these walls are made of brick because the Picts and the Scots would steal brick. Adrian's Wall to make their dry stone dikes. Build a wall with thieving. Yeah. Something else with them. And the Picts used to just, I don't even, I don't know that they ever had a concept of wanting to beat the Roman army. They seemed happy to just let them exist on the other side of the wall because it was easy pickings. They could just, they could find a section of the wall that was poorly defended, hop over, kill a few soldiers, steal some cattle, do whatever they wanted, come back over the other side, call it a victory. But what really struck me about the Picts is when you start to find some of the stone carvings, and it looks like they have battlefield tactics. There's a specific carving where you see three ranks of soldiers. You see a warrior in the front with a sword and a shield, a warrior in a middle rank with a spear and a shield, and then a warrior in the rear rank with a big long spear and no shield. So it's almost the start of those unit-based tactics. There's almost a shield wall there. That's what period? Uh, those Pictish carvings would probably be around the 9th or 10th century for some of those stone carvings, okay, I would think. Really? Maybe a little earlier than that. I'm trying to remember the exact point when the Scots came across. Because then the Scots came from Ireland, they established the Kingdom of Dalriada, which was one of my main visits. The first time I went to Scotland is I went to the hill fort at Dunad, 
which was the, the historic cap, capital of the Kingdom of Belriata. And most of the fort's gone, but the hill's still there. There's still this uh, footprint worn into stone that the tradition is that the King of Scotland would, would have to put their foot in there, and if it fit, that meant that they were the true King of Scotland. Or the true King of the Scots, I suppose, King of the Dalriata. Um, so they were, you know, the Irish Scots came over to Scotland and then warred with the Picts. And as far as I know, the only reason Scotland is called Scotland and not Pickland is because they eventually made an alliance and they had this back-and-forth thing where there would be a Scottish king on the throne and then when he died or was deposed or whatever, there would be a Pictish king for the next reign and then a Scottish king and then a Pictish king. And the last king happened to be Scottish and that's kind of what turn the country into Scotland instead of Pickland. That's what makes it hard to research the Picts, is there was enough cultural mix that they became indistinguishable from Scots at a certain point. But they're described really differently than Celtic people. They're not they're not fair-haired or fair-skinned, necessarily. They're described as, the only word that, you could, that really comes to mind is swarthy. You know, they were dark, curly-haired, big people. And there's, uh, there's theories they came up in the Mediterranean, that they sailed up in the Mediterranean and landed in northern Scotland. Atlantis, man! Could well be. You never know. They apparently had rounded swords, too, but we most of that information from one of those Osprey books, and I hear that they're not always meticulously researched. Oh, no. That's a little, you know what? Yeah. I didn't know that. But um, all the like the shapes on the bottoms of the scabbards of Pictish swords are round. Like they look like a little horseshoe on the bottom. And most of the swords that have been found don't have a point either. So it makes you wonder. Like maybe they never thrusted. Maybe the thrust wasn't part of their. Like you had a spear for thrusting and a sword for cutting. Because with a rounded point, it's sharp. I mean, you can still thrust, but you're not going to really pierce anything with it. You're just. Then again, the Picts were known to not wear armor. So they didn't have to worry about piercing through stuff for the most part. They were the ones that, well, the Caledonians, I think, were known for being naked and painted, and then that passed over to the Picts. But it's not Wode, goddammit. It's not what? Wode. It's always that thing they painted themselves with Wode. Oh, okay. It's a mineral. Um, but woad is kind of caustic, apparently. It's not It's not very good for a face paint, because it just kind of burns you. It doesn't stay on your skin very well. And uh, I, I've heard that it doesn't make a good tattoo for the same reason. It just kind of burns itself out. Um, and I think any of the bog finds that they found, the pigment that went into the blue tattoo, is it might have been a similar color to woad, but it's an iron dye that, that made that blue pigment. So you can use woad to dye clothing. But it's pretty doubtful that that's what they were using for skin and tattooing. Anybody else want more nuts? Yeah, that's why I always liked that. I had good time in, in the SCA because I had a buddy who played a, a Roman, like a Celtic Roman auxiliary. So we would always have fun back and forth, and he would call me uncivilized for wearing pants. Because at the time, Romans were wearing long tunics and no pants, and the Celts were wearing these checkered pants. He said, oh, only barbarians wear pants. Uh, I never liked the sandals in your legs thing myself. I don't like the sandals at all. I've tried wearing Roman sandals, and I don't know how those legionnaires marched for hundreds of miles wearing those things without their feet just falling off. I mean, it's, it's again, it's the context. It's this conscript armies with, we don't care if you're on soldier guys. Yeah. We're going to toughen up so that once you get there, we're going to fight. I'm not, I don't want to be that guy. I want to be the landish neck where, you know, we're more valuable than you. Right, yeah. Dan Carlin had this Really interesting, I guess, thought that he, he didn't fully explore, but he's talking about whether or not there's just something culturally in certain people that makes them good warriors. And he was talking about the Roman Legion specifically because you can itemize all the things that the Roman Legion does, right? Okay, Studum, okay, Lorica, here's, here's the way the helmet is, here's how you organize the Legion, here's how you train the troops, 
here's the basic formations they fight under. And people tried. People tried to replicate the Roman Legion. You know, they, they'd armor their troops in a similar way, they'd train them in similar ways, and they'd send them out, and they never performed the way the Roman Legion performed. It's always that question, is there just something, was there something at that time period to being Roman that just made it easy to be a legionary? You get the same idea when you talk about Spartans. What is it that makes a Spartan such a great warrior when Greek hoplites were all kind of hoplites? Spartan hoplite didn't look that much different than an Athenian hoplite. Polo ponies. Holy polo pony, Batman!
right? So the empire grows. It's twice as big, but it's four times as complex. Yeah. So then what happens is the bureaucratic army is, you need a standing army, but you can't afford the standing army that would be enough to garrison everywhere. Right. So you end up with light garrisons. This is kind of cops today, right? Yeah. Light garrisons, but you can call in the shock troops at any time. So they had the mobility thing. Right. So that's the forced march. Is right. Because, uh, you know, the other guys might get the upper hand for a week or so, but then you throw in reinforcements. Yeah. And, then, and those guys are trained and always ready to go. And then you call them in, and then you crush whatever little fire comes up wherever it is. And you do it nastily enough, you put the fear into the rest of them. The real trick there becomes the logistics of it all, though, because if you want to move the Legion yeah. to whatever territory, you need a huge supply train right. following that Legion, and the Legion can't move faster than the supplies. Exactly, which is why I say their nastiness is the bureaucracy. Right. That's, that's where it comes from. They, 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 they were tough. But their tool, a lot of it, is freaking bean counters, man. Yeah. That's that's what's going on. Same thing as supply in the Navy, right? Right. Makes it exactly. worse that we don't. chain stuff. And yeah. the Romans do that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. See, in those days, it was easier to live off the land, because everywhere that could be productive was productive. And right. they would come through, and don't think they wouldn't steal your freaking wheat field and eat it up. Right. Right? No, but they didn't care. That's the other thing. They didn't salt the fields. It was attacking. Yeah. Right? Deny the other guy his logistics, and then take yours. Well, that's where it gets really interesting when you start reading about the Mongols, Genghis Khan, and the fact that he would just raise an entire town and salt the fields and destroy any possibility of there being any production from that area just to send a message. Yeah, but he's a pastoralist, mm-hmm. so he's always on the move. Yeah, well, yeah, it's an entirely nomadic empire. What a bizarre concept. Have empire you ever seen no capital. <laughs> There's a TV, I think it was made for TV, I assume it was. It's, um, it's pretty long, but it's... Um, it might even be just called Genghis, but it's freaking Gerard Butler plays him. Oh, really? Oh, it's hilarious. It's hilarious because he goes to Rome and, anyways, but there's a line there where he's looking pensive, which Gerard Butler does well. Yeah. And he has a Roman bath. Like, he goes to Rome and he hangs out in the bath and he goes back home and he wants him to build a bath or something. Yeah. And then there's some advisor guy who says something about, you know, well, can you bring Rome here or something? And he goes, I can take it anytime I want, but I can't hold it. Right, because he knew as a pastor, he couldn't hold his troops together. It's all kin-based. Yeah, it's all tough man politics. Same thing as Saladin, right? He held that guy together. He could take back Jerusalem, but he, I mean, he could hold it, but he can't hold the army together. He can't garrison it. Those pastoralists, he can't garrison anything. That's right. So they have to use that threat of it's shock troops, it's your original storm, storm, uh, storm trooper stuff. Right? Yeah. So that's that's classic pastoral psychology. That's because that's where they live, right? Yeah. And the other ones are the same. Camel herders, they're also pastoralists. Yep. Well, those are tough mothers. I teach my answer, of course. I say, you know, we go over there and we think we're going to kick their butt. It's like, I have no freaking idea what these people are like. They're pastoralists. Well, Still, today, they're how, how many armies over the course of history have advanced to those steps and no further? Have you know, come to that point and you're done. You can't go further than that. I don't know if you've heard the quote, but it's a freaking policy advisor, high level, or I can't remember who it is. The U.S. government, he writes in uh, the, the public policy rag. I forget what it is. It's, one, it's kind of like New Statesman. It might even be New Statesman. Anyways, and, and he writes this article. He's, quote, and this is an old quote, right? Um, Afghanistan is where empires go to die. Right. Right? Yeah. And, and it's not new to the, well, the Russians are new person. But, you know, even Alexander. Although the... Couldn't get through it. Right? Mongols did some damage down in that area. <laughs> there's, yeah, there's, but they didn't try to take it. That's true. See, well, see, this is the thing: the Mongols were never an empire. Like, like empires roam. Right. The logic of empires is totally right. different. Yeah. The Mongol horde was never an empire. They're tribute based. Yes. That's different. You yeah. come through once a year, you take a few kids, and you make you make them give them sacks of grain and wool. Yeah. It's and almost like just having vassal states rather. And than that's more like feudalism. Yeah. Where there's local autonomy all the time. Yeah. So that's not the empire. The logic of empire is bureaucratic. Taxes and pen pushes, that's wrong. The Persian Achaemenid Empire was a lot like that as well. They they maintained a lot of the individuality of places that they conquered. And there's really interesting stuff with the, the Persians, like the Persian uh, Achaemenid yeah, Empire. Yeah. What's the name of the empire? Uh, Persian Achaemenid Empire. Yeah, I don't know. What it's, the, like, it's the Persian Empire under Cyrus the Great and uh, all, the way up to, um, all the way up to Xerxes. Like the Persian Empire pretty much ends with Xerxes. But it's early. Yeah, the, technically the last emperor... Three Crusades. Three Crusades. Technically the last emperor of the Persian Empire was Alexander. 
He's the one who finally came in and, and took it over completely. So the Persian Empire became part of the Macedonian Empire, and that's that's where it went to die. But uh, they would there, there's debate, I guess. When they would come to make a show of force, they would show up with armies, with units from all of the conquered states within the Persian Empire. And there's differing opinions. I mean, on one hand, on one hand, they're sending a message to the people that they're fighting, and they're saying, "Look at the, look at the exotic nature of our empire. Look at all these people that we can draw from. If we can draw this many people from these many corners of the world for our empire, what hope do you have of facing against this might?" And then the other side of the coin is that by having units from all of these states that are technically vassal states, you've got 10,000 hostages, or, you know, however many. So if that state then decides they're going to take this opportunity to rebel while the army's away, well, that entire section of the army might just be executed. Did you learn your lesson? All your fighting men are dead right. now. Uh, battles, 
one of the later battles when they, like the full might of the Greek army was kind of facing off against the full might of the Persian army at that point. Um, one of these, one of the Greek commanders, all of the city states, most of the city states anyway, wanted to retreat and just give up the fight because they didn't think they could win. And he ended up secretly sending a messenger to pretend to be a deserter to go to the Persians and say the Greeks are weak and they're fleeing and you have to attack now. And then he just went back to the rest of the Greek city-states and said, okay, I told Persia that we're retreating, so they're coming to attack, so you better fight or we're all going to die. And then they fought and won. Because, again, that's the problem with the city-state model. Is it's the same thing as the, well, I was cited for Saladin, is, is the pastoralists, is how do you hold these internally divisive, right, fighting, if they're not fighting the external enemy, they're fighting among themselves. Yeah. And how do you hold those coalitions together? Or even get them together in the first place. Right. So like in Kingdom of Heaven, I really love the scene in the tent where Saladin is talking to his own generals and the guy's talking about God's will, God's will. And he's like, was it God's will that I would do this? Was it God's will that I would do this? Was it God's will that I would do this? He's basically slapping him upside the head and saying, yeah, sure, you can try. But if you can't hold this freaking army together of 200,000 men, right. you're not going to take Jerusalem either. Right. Yeah. It's like his, but basically he's telling him, it's the politics, dude. It's not the fighting. Yeah. And, and I'm strong enough to hold this freaking shaky ship together. Right? Which is why the Saddam Hussein thing, you can't take a, in the Middle East, it's always got to be a strong man guy. And they put in the freaking puppet, and then none of the people there respect them. Right. So the, the American puppet, doesn't matter, they just ignore him and do an end run around him. Like, ah, that's nothing I can fear. It's crazy how stark these cultural differences can be when you look at, like, we're all humans. DNA is not any different. All the same. Well, we behave so, so differently. That's environment. Yeah. That's, and again, that's where you do get into something to what you said earlier. Like there is the epigenetics. So yeah. you get generation after generation in a certain environment, like the, the breed will toughen up. So it's like the, your friend with the, uh, the, the ghost dance thing, right? Like, yeah. Was it Sunday? Sunday, Sunday. Sunday. Yeah. Uh, I mean, technically, again, it's selection, but the selection is also epigenetic. So culture maps onto genes, which then maps back onto culture. Right. Uh, pretty efficient, actually. So we can vary a lot within our cultures. Yeah. Some of it maps onto our, our disease. Well, I mean, if you want to argue that humans are absolutely the dominant form of life on Earth, which it's a hard argument to disprove the more we more damage we do around us, that... Nothing else has really, really come close to the damage that we can do. Now, what was that? It was a Charles Darwin diet. Charles Darwin line that it's not the strongest species nor the smartest that survives, but the one most able to adapt. Right. And if you look at any sci-fi and fantasy where they involve other species other than humans, it's always the core trait of humanity is that we can be a whole bunch of different things. Yeah. That we're adaptable and that we can, we, whatever environment is thrown at us, we figure out some way. To modify ourselves or modify the environment to suit us. Yeah. So that's always been what we hold up. And then that's, so then that raises the interesting question of limits to adaptability, because uh, this is why I like the way I think it's right. Richard Wright, Roland Wright, was a mass election one year. Uh, and he talks about progress traps. Right. Where sometimes uh, you can specialize in something. And one of the classic examples is the extinction of the megafauna in North America. Where, you know, hunting, hunting was a progress track because it, it, it worked, brought in tons of meat, population explosion, and then we hunted them to extinction because it was too much success. The thing worked really well. And then, yes, we did kind of breed it. Again, it's winners versus losers. Right. Like, if you look at North America as a good example, you have all these smaller cultures, nothing as big as us, but they come and go and come and go. It's so like the Anasazi is just one good example. There, we think it's agriculture and it was a water issue. Right. Like they just pack up and go. Yeah. Nobody knows where. And that stuff happened probably fast. Like they figure 15, 25 years. Right, yeah. Right? So your success sometimes is your downfall. So what is the limit of adaptation? Right? So I, and, and going in a twisted direction here because for a long, long, long time, our adaptability has been our strategy. But if we kind of like almost like too much success, maybe we adaptify ourselves to death. Does that make sense? Yeah. So instead of facing one problem, maybe we'll face 20. Right. It just overwhelms our adaptability. Well, it's almost like that whole thing. You can't grow claws and a bigger brain and bigger yeah. teeth and fur all at the same time or something, you know? It's almost like that whole talk we had about uh, 
gene editing too is that we're just not smart enough to see everything that can happen down the line. That's so issue. we can adapt to the immediate, but how? Yeah, we have to keep keep adapting, and it's like exponential adaptation. Exactly. So you hit the yeah. break, what they call the point of declining returns, right? right. The, the further out, of, and this is the thing I have around civilization, right? Because if you think of little cycles within cycles, like the stock market, it's always going up and down. But is the trend this way? Or this way, and then there's like a four-year cycle, it's an eight-year cycle, six-year right. cycle, and then the Condratif cycle, 78 years, right? And then we now know there's maybe a couple 125-year cycles. And for me, this time around, the big one I'm wondering is, is there a millennium cycle to the economy? Right. right? So if we have a crash this time, like, like the same with the meteorites, right? There's an ELE, extinction-level meteorite. Yeah. So same idea. Is there an extinction-level economic crash every once in a thousand years, whereas, you know, the Depression of the 30s was just a in a century type thing, you know? Right. So I think we've adapted ourselves almost too efficiently. And a little inefficiency and a little fat in the system. Right. For, for uh, headroom. So you know? if you're looking at like a millennial crash, is there a point you can go back in history and say, there it was, there's the near extinction level. Well, that's the problem. It would be crash. the entire Western civilization. Right. So maybe a two millennium, sorry. Like right. Between a thousand and two thousand years. Is, is is it possible that that entire Western-inspired civilization coming from Greece and Rome is that one cycle? Right. Because before that, you had the previous civilizations of agriculture. So you had uh, Mesopotamia, and you had um, the other big one. There's two big ones, and then the Assyrians and that are pretty little ones. But there's Mesopotamia, Sumeria. Yes. Two big ones, right? Or Egypt. Sorry, Egypt and Mesopotamia, maybe Sumeria. So... That's, that's, and see, at lower energy capture levels, then the cycle times might be slightly different, right? So that's why I keep talking about oil. Oil, yeah, makes subsidy for us. I've, uh, I've become pretty obsessed recently with this idea of, of, uh, I guess like a spiraled cycle. Yeah. Right? Because you, you see cycles all through nature, but I, 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 I can see it at least on a microcosm level. It's really hard to look at the, the big picture. And it would take an awful lot of research to try to prove that there's some you're looking for a multiple thousand years cycle. Yeah, just well, just everywhere. If, but I mean, like, let's look at something really simple. Let's take it right back to doing longsword. I think that there's a training cycle that follows a spiral, yeah. where you you go through these phases where you will actively get, you will fall back to a lower level, and you start yeah. feeling like you're doing worse. But it's as long as the spiral is kind of going upward, yeah. even though you keep cycling back to these parts where you feel like a failure, you're, you're having net gains. Your, your ability is going up time, over time. So, so two things on that. One is the British post-secondary education system, like the Oxford, well, the Cambridge-Oxford system is like that. Is you, you, you keep returning to the same stuff. They, they do that. Like, they keep going back to the same base. That's why the canon is there. Right. You keep doing Shakespeare, at, you know, first upper-level form, mid-level form. Right. You keep going back to Shakespeare, but you keep doing it at a higher and higher level. Right. Second thing is, if you want to look into something, is uh, have you ever heard of Ken Wilber? No. Okay. He's it's more he calls it integral psychology. Okay. But he actually has a he actually has a spiral dynamics for it's more of a psychological evolution than a human adaptability thing. Right. Uh, but he talks but it ties into culture because he puts colors on it. So he talks about the purple phase, which is kind of like like the empire brutality stuff. And right. There's the the more bureaucratic Roman phase, it's orange. Anyways, and it, so for him, it is a spiral. It's almost a more new agey thing where yeah. we're, I don't know, we're getting paint or white or something. Right. Or something. Anyways, but, but the idea is maybe from here we could leap forward. Oh, is that, that's not much here. No, no. No, that's 15. Ah, perfect. Uh, oh, yeah, it's going up the hill when I hit the yeah. So the idea is that we might be spiraling up and maybe hitting some kind of, you know, enlightenment thing. But you could also then uh, take Wilbur and just add my thing in or alternatively, maybe it's just a thousand-year spiral. So, right. So he's a guy who actually does write about it. He's got a whole bunch of books. Uh, Ken Wilbur, he'll be in the library for sure. Yeah. Uh, he's a bald guy. Uh, lost someone. I think he lost his wife to cancer. Right. So it actually pressure-tested his faith in his stuff. Yeah. So just, which book is the one that talks most about the spiral dynamic? I have this, I have this hope that that exists on a macrocosm level, and that even though we're going through, the, we can see it right now, we're clearly going through the downside. I, 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 
a cycle of decline, right? We're, we're going, there's an empire in decline right to our south. There's very little argument against that fact right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the hope is that the next time we come to an upswing, it's higher up than it was when the you know when the American Republic started. Maybe maybe we, we can we can go a little bit higher. But then I guess the big problem is that you bring it back to physics, you're still trying to fight entropy and you can't. See that and that's the problem because in all our cleverness we've shit in our own sandbox. Yeah. That's see that's the problem because because I like Dyson's approach, it's energy capture. We do a lot of energy capture, but we're also polluting the source, right? Yeah. That's the one that concerns me. So, and it is a toss-up for sure, right? Can't really tell. Maybe it is this nice little spiral up, but the problem is the higher up you are, the farther you have to fall, right? Exactly. Use that old analogy. So, it, and that's the thing: is it's great and not great, and then life is still a mystery. Yeah. Right? Because actually, it is technically unknowable. Right? You get a few feelings on it, but it's going to play out. It'll be interesting. So, yeah, mini the mini spiral. Because the other one for me is the Graham Hancock thing where he talks about the galactic year. That's right, 25,000 yeah. years. Absolutely, yeah. So is there a 25,000 year? Because now you're talking Mayas, Aztecs, you know, Machu Picchu. Well, and if you, on those sites, when you talk to, or when you, you listen to Graham Hancock, or had a chance to speak to the man, his concept is that we have this almost antiquated notion that humanity is upward progress, and we deny that there could be any kind of catastrophic event that would cause us to start over. Right. Or to well, maybe not even start over, but just you know, drop down a few and levels on that, on that spiral. Yeah, because that's his idea, is that we we existed as modern humans long before we have recorded civilization. Right. It's almost foolish to think that we just sat around being modern humans with a modern developed human brain and never thought of any of these ideas until suddenly a light bulb went off 10,000 years ago we all started living in cities. Bullshit. Because yeah. that was there and that's done. And see, here's the thing. Hancock doesn't go there, but I'm happy to go there because he can sell books, so it's good. Right. But here's the thing is, the only thing that makes any of that, I always use logic, the only thing that makes that make sense is an active conspiracy of silence. So the ideology of human progress as a unilateral thing is, is necessary because anything else that opens up that possibility then means, because any, any conspiracy like that, it, it only works as long as people don't think it's possible yeah. that we had, like, that Atlantis was real. So if people actually really seriously considered we were civilized 10 and 20,000 years ago, and pyramids were, you know, not built by ignorant savages, then that opens everything up to question. And then the cracks and the inconsistencies would be, like, found out so fast it would be over. So that that, that unwavering faith, and it's yeah. not even because it's, it's the media, like, like, you're not allowed to question it publicly, and individuals like you may exist all over to question so that unwavering faith in unilinear, you know, always progress, it's like mandated because the problem is for the guys in control, any questioning of it and the whole house of cards comes down. Right. So it's one thing we're not allowed to question. So that's why Hancock has such a hard time. I think you should listen to more recent Hancock because he is definitely willing to say those things now. But the I think conspiracy he's, part? Well, yeah, I think he's a tiny bit less conspiratorial about it and he puts it more down to almost individual human hubris. Because the idea is, you've got people who have spent their lives in academia, and not only earned PhDs, but then granted PhDs based on these ideas. So it's really hard to then say, oh yeah, I was wrong, because there's this part of you that then says everything you've done in your life is invalid, because you were wrong the whole time. So there's this instinct to fight back against something that challenges your worldview. I mean, we see that today in in politics, and there's all kinds of... uh, the studies going on now showing that um, God, what's the word? It's not confirmation bias. It's the feedback effects that once someone has an incorrect opinion, presenting them with facts that prove that they are wrong does nothing to change their opinion. It actually strengthens their their opinion. Yeah, because they just see this attack against themselves. Now we see we see that on the microcosm and email. Right? You don't see people who just have their dedication to their interpretation of a manual, and someone comes up with a new idea, a new interpretation, and they're not even willing to look at it. They just dismiss it offhand and say, no, because I spent my whole life saying it's this way, so if I'm wrong, my life's been a waste. <laughs> I didn't say any names. We're not all as bad as Clarence. I think we still have one. No, not many people are as bad as Clarence. Super duper. 
see front door bread or back door? I never do front door. Back door is better or both? What's easier? Back door is better? Yeah, it was easier. Well, that's why I dropped you off before. It was just funny because when Brian said go around the fun, I was like, oh, okay. Stop on 